I'm Toby Kincaid. Let's be honest. Big oil runs the world. The single greatest source of air pollution worldwide is car exhaust. Now, the gasoline-powered internal combustion engine has really served its purpose. Now, we've been doing this for a long time, 130 years. The basic architecture, you're getting partially consumed hydrocarbons. And anyone who has looked at, and I'm sure you've seen pictures from Beijing, you know, they're, they're swimming in a soup, a cloud of, of sulfates and sulfites and particulates and ozones and many toxins. And this has really become, given the size of humanity, kind of incompatible with any future that anyone would want. So these great paradigms are in convergence. The paradigm of continuing a fossil fuel-based petroleum transportation system with great stresses, as we've discussed, or a biofuel future and the electric car. All of these paradigms are beginning to come back into focus. Now, in part four, we saw 100 years ago, all of these paradigms came into their first big battle, and Rockefeller won that shakeout. 1899 saw a tremendous transition of the great revolution of going to an internal combustion engine as it revolutionized the external combustion engine. You know, steam engines are external combustion engine. You, you have the, uh, the combustion is happening outside of the working cylinder. The internal combustion engine does, of course, the combustion inside the working cylinder. So this was a big revolution over steam engines. And uh, steam engines were really rolling for 100 years, all burning coal, of course, uh, since James Watt in 1750. You know, and James Watt, he did another thing, not, not just the boiler and the condenser as separate units and having a working f fluid in between those two. Um, he also introduced the flywheel. And even early diesel engines used the flywheel. And the flywheel did something really important. You know, in 1750, if, by putting on a flywheel, it, it kind of smoothed out the linear stroke of the engine. But it also changed that kind of back-and-forth linear piston motion into a rotary motion. And so not only did you have this nice kind of very uh, short-term storage unit, they're using the flywheel as a kind of inertial battery, but it also turned everything into ro rotational energy. And this you could put a band on and uh, you could run a loom. Or you could put another band on it and uh, run a saw. So for, you know, 1750, this is just in incredible. So, so going all the way back, you know, 1699, uh, with the introduction of the external combustion engine, you know, obsoleted muscle power, which kind of ran human society with the exception of sails and wind and, and water wheels, but everything was mostly human muscle or animal muscle, you know, throughout deep time up to 1699. Then we had the atmospheric external engine and then uh, 1750 comes along and of course the, the, in, the, the, it's still an external combustion, but James Watt makes it rotary. And now we have the internal combustion engine as we enter the 20th century. And this sets the stage. Uh, for events that we, as we covered in part four, that led up to World War One. Okay, 
So, for a whole century, there really uh, was a dead period. I mean, the, the electric uh, car was stymied because the, the battery technology of 1880, the lead-acid batteries, though they are very good and improved, they're still very heavy. So, for an electric vehicle, the battery technology, after, you know, as we, we saw in part four, um, for vehicles, uh, even though electricity spread everywhere because you could, you could move it so well, but for electric vehicles, it really was the end compared to the big scale of petroleum that Rockefeller put together. Now, biofuels could have been big. You know, this was one of those points in history where if Rudolf Diesel lived, uh, we may have a completely different 20th century, um, but he didn't. And uh, I'm afraid the greatest advocate before the 20th century for biofuels was lost. And so the idea of people growing peanuts in a very decentralized uh, uh, source of fuel was uh, completely opposite of what Rockefeller wanted. He wanted to sell you something. That means you needed rock oil. And he was extremely well organized in how he consolidated that industry. And he won the, the war of the, of the fuels. But uh, the, uh, so in one fell swoop, World War I ended the, the chance of the 20th century being a renewable uh, fuel-based uh, economy. So let's fast forward now a whole century and let's enter the year 1990. Let's go into that decade. A hundred years later it took, but another convergence happened. And the first little, uh, little hint of it was General Motors releasing the EV1. Now the EV1, as you remember, was, you know, who killed the electric car? The EV1 was the first electric vehicle that GM introduced recently, and it was extremely popular. People loved it. The users of it loved it. It was silent. It, it, they didn't have to deal with gas stations. They could plug it in at home and it would charge up at night. And even though it had a limited range, you know, 60 mile round trip range, it still was for most people's commute well within their daily needs of a car. And the amazing thing is that the users loved it. Now, this is a fact that is not lost on the Japanese and European manufacturers. But GM, as you recall, it became pretty evident when they scrapped the program. The reason they did that is they really had no real intent of, of finishing the program. You know, they got a lot of good government money. Uh, it was a great uh, publicity stunt. Uh, they got a lot of great press worldwide. It showed the leadership. But it wasn't a really serious attempt. And it also had implications on how electric vehicles are charged. So in the United States, you know, our electrical standard is 120 volts. And at that voltage, uh, you can charge an electric vehicle, as they designed it to do, uh, basically overnight. Eight to 12 hours to get a full charge. Well... So after GM scrapped this program, an amazing thing happened. The Japanese and Europeans, those auto manufacturers, went head-on into the electric vehicle. They had already been doing a lot of hybrid work, but now they went into the, into the EV. By going to the electric car, they could take advantage of, of the, the one aspect that in, it technologically obsoletes the gasoline internal combustion engine, and that is the electric powertrain. An electric car 
runs in a completely different system. I mean, you have, you know, three systems. You have energy in, energy out, and you have a storage system. And these three are all integrated by an energy management system. And this energy management system is far more efficient than any mechanical linkage of, of having pistons go up and down in a power block. So it's a tremendous technological uh, uh, step in modern electric cars. And now the battery technology is caught up, so we're dealing with much longer ranges. But in the American market, that model that GM used to charge with an American voltage, 120 volts, is an interesting choice. Because at the time that GM gets out of it, the Europeans and Japanese really get into it. But they have a different approach in the charging. Uh, the 8 to 12 hours isn't really an option for them because the Japanese and the Europeans run on 220 volts. They have a much higher voltage system. And we call this level 2. You know, the American voltage, 120 volts, is level 1. takes a long time. Level 2, the Japanese and Europeans, they have a standard that can charge in about 2 hours. Now, this is much more desirable, and you, you may think, wow, why are the, the, the Japanese and the Europeans so smart? Well, th their systems run on 220 volts. They had to start that way. And by having that level 2 charging, there's a big advantage in adopting that standard. The, uh, the American companies kept an old standard. So suddenly, when GM bowed out, the, uh, the Japanese and Europeans pounced. Now remember, their, their economies, they, they, those two groups don't have much petroleum. They don't have min, very uh, good access to oil resources. So they have a predisposition to this. But from a charging point of view, what you have is uh, uh, the 220 volt. You may wonder why. Why did the Japanese and Europeans go with this higher voltage? Well, that goes back to World War II. You know, after their infrastructure was destroyed during the war, they had to make some decisions. And why not just emulate the Americans and do the 120 volts? Well, and this kind of comes down to the, uh, in physics, when you, you push electricity through a wire, uh, the resistance of that wire follows something they call the I squared R rule. And that means if you take a wire and you, you put a couple of amps through it, the resistance of that wire increases by the square of the amperage that you're trying to push. So what that means is, say you put a couple of amps in, the square of two amps is four. If you had three amps going, the square of that is nine. So you see four, four amps would be 16. So the resistance really increases in any given wire. So by going to a higher voltage, uh, you push less current, and that means you have less I squared R losses. So when they rebuilt the Japanese and European infrastructure and grid, uh, they went with smaller wires because it would cost less, but that meant higher voltage. So this turned out to be a big advantage because now their charging protocols would allow this faster two-hour charge time. Okay, now finally we get to the, to the modern time. Now, as we get closer to where we are now in 2016, the American companies took another jump. So they went to an even higher voltage, 440 volts, and that becomes a fast charge format. So what was once level one, you know, eight to 12 hours, that's level one charging. Level two became, uh, you could fill up in two hours. Now with this high voltage DC fast charge, you're able to fill up in 15 minutes.
So the majority of filling up. So in practicality, a 15-minute time is is very close to what people would spend uh, doing some errands and doing some shopping and so forth. So now we're getting into a quick charge protocol that that eliminates one of those big uh, major objections to the earlier electric cars, which was, well, you know, it takes a long time to charge. Well, now that's gone away. So we've seen this evolution, and the two, three, four major areas of automotive manufacturers are now making actually incredible cars. You look at the uh, Japanese and their uh, Leaf, the Nissan Leaf. Ooh, wonderful. Uh, you look at the German manufacturers, the VW's E-Golf. Ooh, very, very beautiful car. And then the Americans' Cadillacs, the uh, EDLs. Ooh, this this car. They took it to the car shows, and uh, people couldn't believe that it, it that it was electric. They said, "Wait a second, this 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 is too beautiful. This can't be an electric car. This this is a gorgeous car. Imagine that. This is too beautiful." So what a reaction! Cadillac loved it. What we're all waiting for now. Now, the technology has obsoleted the gasoline internal combustion engine. The next step, the step that's going to break the dam in this transportation revolution, is the economics. We've obsoleted the internal combustion engine with technology. Now the economics need to be obsoleted. And what I mean by that is the notion of going to a gas station and buying gas. That whole world will actually disappear under the electric car paradigm. Because the infrastructure I keep mentioning for the electric car already exists. It's the portals that will really matter. Now, why then, I put it to you, do we not see this whole, why do we still see uh, internal combustion engines? Well, there's a one last large impediment that's keeping the electric car from exploding around the world as the choice in powertrains. And that is the same kind of paradigm butting of heads we've seen before. There are conflicting interests. Now, the electric car depends on electricity. Electricity now really is distributed through our electrical grids. Electrical grids are organized by utilities, and utilities are kind of extend within their service area. You know, Boston Con Edison, you know, San Diego Gas and Electric. So they're all in territories, but they're all within grids. And what's happened in the last uh, decade or two is really a new strategy for how utilities charge for electricity. Now, everyone gets an electric bill and everyone sees, oh, I'm charged for the kilowatt hours for the energy that I'm using. And I may even be charged for the time of day that those kilowatt hours are drawn. You know, they're trying to, you know, to discourage you from using it when everyone is peaking and during noon and running air conditioners in Los Angeles, for example. So you may have a different rate. But in the last 10 years, the total electric utility industry has grown in the United States uh, 10%. But their revenues have grown 50%. Why? Well, what the utilities are now doing is charging you what they call a demand charge. Now, that's in addition to the electricity itself, which is an energy charge. A demand charge is a power charge. And what they're saying is, okay... 
If you use more than 20 kilowatts at any one time for, say, more than 15 minutes, then you're going to trigger this demand charge. So let's say you're going to your factory and you turn everything on and uh, it, you turn on all the machines and it may draw 22,000 watts, 22 kilowatts instead of 20. It's a little bit over, right? Well, that would trigger that demand charge. And even though you only warmed up your equipment for, say, half an hour and turned off half of it, so it's only pulling a power rate of 10 kilowatts, it didn't matter. From the utility standpoint, you went over 20 kilowatts even for that 15 minutes. So they're going to charge you a, an extremely significant fee for this demand charge. Now, the reason they will say is, well, we're trying to, to lower the load on the grid. When everyone turns on their air conditioner, we have to have some penalty so that natural market forces will adjust, you know, adjust usage depending on what the grid can handle. But really, they're cashing in big time. So this demand charge is actually an extreme problem for electric vehicle charging. Because when the car comes in and you're going to do this fast charge particularly, you're going to spike that demand charge. And if the utility is uh, the supply of electricity, which is mostly is the case, then now you see there's this big spike in charge and it changes the whole economics. This is the blockage that once is overcome, changes everything. 